Hello, 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 and welcome to I Heard It on a Podcast. This is our wonderful little corner of the Wild West that is the internet. My name is Isaiah. And my name is Riley. Today is Topic Thunder. I'm curious how that's going to sound. Probably not good. Please don't judge me. Yeah, we've got three great topics today. The first is our thoughts on light vandalism. And Isaiah was a little confused about this at first. I was. It's not the vandalism of lights, like light bulbs and other uh, lighting fixtures. It's things like TPing and egging and forking. Uh, I was kind of <laughs> wondering, like, are we just going to talk about smashing light fixtures for 15 minutes? And how can we have that many thoughts on it? But it's okay, I'm just dumb, so... <laughs> Oh, you're not dumb. The next topic is uh, weird wilderness survival techniques. I've got some weird ones, and we're going to talk about them. And also, I found a study, a legitimate scientific study, that found that restrictive diets can lead to loneliness. We're going to discuss that. And uh, Mm. I don't think either of us have anything near a restrictive diet, but uh, we'll get into that. First, let's circle back to our thoughts on light vandalism. And I, I, I couldn't think of a better term for it. But like I said, I'm talking about forms of what are essentially vandalism, but are not intended to be like truly detrimental, detrimental or long-term or very damaging. So mostly things like teepeeing, or forking, which if you don't know is sticking plastic forks in the like grass of someone's yard. Um, flower bombing, which is creating a little package, like a saran wrap package of flour and throwing it on the ground near someone's feet and it just creates this little explosion of flour. And glitter bombing, which can actually be pretty messy. And yeah, depending on where you do a glitter bomb you could be finding glitter there for decades to come. So I was looking at a list of all of these different things, all of these different, what some might call pranks. And there were also listed things like milkshaking, which is throwing a milkshake at someone, pieing, throwing a pie at someone, and egging. And I think those are a little more uh, emotionally charged, especially milkshaking and pieing are traditionally politically motivated. Typically right. the only people who are milkshaked or pied <laughs> are uh, people who are intended to be humiliated or yeah. belittled um, or that you want to purposely say, I disapprove of what you're doing or who you are or something like that. Right. So I think we can all agree that those things are bad. And egging, I, it's Maybe you could argue in some cases is not the worst thing in the world, but eggs can be damaging. Their shells can scratch certain surfaces and they can also be corrosive on certain um, paints on houses and cars. So I'm going to give a thumbs down to egging in general. Unless you throw an egg at someone, then that's fine. (laughs) That sounds great. But only your friends, not just like random people. I don't even know about that. I saw an article of a kid who got hit in the face by an egg, and I'm sure they weren't intending to hit him in the face, or maybe they were, but it blinded the kid. He can't see in what? one eye. I mean, think of oh an gosh. egg is strong. 
If it, if you got yeah. hit in the eye with an egg, it could yeah. do serious damage to your eye. Okay, so only egg your friends if you aim at their legs and are a good shot. Otherwise, don't <laughs> egg. <laughs> I'd say just don't egg people. Just mm. stick to well, I I don't know. We have I have thoughts, but I'm just giving okay. some background here. So yes, I looked yes. it up and TPing, which I think is the most um pervasive of all of these forms of light vandalism um, is generally not considered a crime. Although it is pretty tangentially associated with littering and trespassing and vandalism, you can in some places be charged with disorderly conduct and criminal mischief, which I didn't even know was a thing that existed, criminal mischief. (laughs) What what a weird thing to have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. What a weird thing to have on your criminal record. Criminal mischief. <laughs> um, but depending on how much damage is done or if damage is done and the level of spite of who you TP'd, you could face up to 30 days in jail, a $1,000 fine, and po- the possibility of probation. So potentially you might want to think twice uh, when TP'ing. Um, Isaiah, have you ever TP'd anyone? Have you ever done any TP'ing? I'm trying to think. Um, I don't think I've ever TP'd anyone. I think the farthest I've gone in regards to prank slash moderate vandalism, um, once I put baloney on someone's doorknob, which doesn't, like, baloneying people's cars is a thing, and it, like, strips huh. the paint off a circle. But really? when you put baloney on someone's doorknob, it's just because baloney's kind of a funny meat. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've done I've done like pranks like you know water cups um, doors and just kind of Uh small things like that but I don't think I've ever like vandalized property I typically will go on the side of like doing it to someone else and not something else which to me is more of a prank you know it's less of like I feel like it's hard to get like a good comedic prank when it's against property but that's just me. I know that you have damaged, not damaged, vandalized someone's property. Because <laughs> I was okay. there with was it you. Yours? Oh. It was, uh, I forget whose, it was either Jason's or Eric's house, and someone had parked in the garage and, and or in the driveway and was gone. Yeah. And we saran wrapped their whole car. I remember car. that. It like, was, we for like wrapped a- it youth group thing and i think, I think we so. were meeting in the basement and the girls like group was meeting upstairs uh-huh and so we wrapped the leader of the girls group's car that was good that <laughs> yes. was a good prank i or as far as i know that didn't do any damage because it was kind of cold but if right. it were hot it probably could have melted and like done damage to the car yeah so i don't i'm not super proud of that in retrospect but i can I picture am. You're you're proud of that? I stand corrected. That is a good prank, and that was that was fun. <laughs> I I do remember someone crawling underneath the car, and so that we could grab yeah. the saran wrap and wrap it around uh-huh. the car, uh, widthwise. Yeah, like over the top. I think I have a picture uh-huh. on my Instagram actually. Yeah, if you want to see it, go stalk me like four years ago on my Instagram. <laughs> I I can like imagine that picture in my mind. So uh-huh. you are not above the. Uh, Files of property pranking. 
apparently I put my rowdy days into the deep recesses of my mind and forgot about them. The deep recesses of your mind and on your public facing Instagram page. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So like I said, I think, I think I feel okay about some of these things, but also there's, there's this concept that all of these things are hilarious and an expression of freedom and fun and youth in America. But generally, a lot of, a lot of behavior that's been acceptable is changing in our culture, as it should be. And I'm kind of wondering if this is one of those things. Is this really that lovable prank, kind of a love lick, nudge of affection through giving someone a hard time? Or is it really more of a hazing kind of thing? Right. And I think it could go either way depending on who you're pranking and to what degree you're doing it. But I think I think we can all stand to take a step back and reflect on it and not just continue with our great American tradition of pranking and littering and damaging property because traditionally a lot of these things are are associated with um you you teepee someone's house who is an authority figure or you would do it at your school for the last day of senior year or um it's kind of a a symbol of um like anti-establishment at least in my mind right and I understand why that's the case, but I guess I, I just want to have a little bit of a conversation about is it, is, it, is it always okay in the name of like freedom and youthfulness and does this need to be part of the larger discussion that we're having as a society of what is accepted behavior? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting because anytime I've done like a prank or a vandalism or whatever, it's never been out of like that rebellious or youthful or like sticking it to the man kind of thing. Uh-huh. It's always just been about like, this is going to be so funny. Like when they see what I did and then we're going to all laugh about it. It's going to be fun. So I feel like I might not have useful insight because I was never like <laughs> doing that type of thing. For me, it was always just about like, this is going to like piss my friends off and it's going to be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It'll be, I'm, I'm interested to see what you have to say about it because I feel like I'm coming at it from kind of a different angle. Yeah. I think, I think your relationship with the person that you're pranking, I'll use that term, is a big part of it. Like the reason, totally. the fact that we were friends with the girl who's, car we saran wrapped and then helped yeah. them clean it up afterwards right <laughs> is a big difference than covering your high school in a hundred rolls of toilet paper on the last day of school and then leaving it for the one or two janitors to clean up yeah in my mind those are different circumstances because one is saying hey we think this is hilarious it'll make for a good instagram post too but we'll help you clean it up. And then the other is like, hey, we wanted to say that 
we whatever this sucked or we are we own this school or yeah. we're glad to be oh, we're glad to be gone from here or whatever message you're trying to right. convey and then you just leave it for someone else to deal with yeah um so i think just being conscientious of the effects of it another example of that is forking lawns if you don't pull them pull the forks out properly you can they would break off in the lawn and then there'd be little pieces of plastic stuck in your lawn and that can be damaging to the sod. Um, so I've heard in the past that that's not a great idea. Is, yeah, you sound is like a 40-year-old homeowner. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is when you're 16, that's hilarious and who cares about the 40-year-old homeowners? But yeah, I mean... Someday that'll that will be us, and yeah, and then maybe you'll be cursing we'll be, the kids, right? Someday maybe <laughs> we will be pranked because someone wanted to prank our house on behalf of our kids or whatever, and yeah, maybe it will be less funny then. They'll so, probably have biodegradable forks by then, though, so it won't be a big deal. <laughs> well, I'm, there are biodegradable forks now, but I wonder if those are the ones that people use. Hmm. Do you think they'll still have plastic forks in forty years? Um, well, I sure hope not, but <laughs> that's a whole other debate. Um, I think my ultimate question is, is all damage to property, whether it's temporary or not, bad in all circumstances? If it's temporary, then is it actually damage? Hmm. Well, I'm... I guess it's not damage, but it still requires additional effort to clean up and make, like, to do something about that you weren't planning right. on. Um, okay. I would say not necessarily. Okay. And. The reason why is because I think it goes back to the relationship thing again. Like, I would happily TP your car if that's a thing. And that theoretically is adding more, you know, work that you have to do and it's an inconvenience. But I also would probably help you clean it up. And that then becomes like a bonding experience and we can laugh about how your car looks and we can like have fun and do something like that. So I think like in the context of, like hanging out with your friends or like your family or whatever, stuff like that is good. But I would say, especially nowadays, generally like pranks are less looked out, like less looked or more looked down upon, I should say. Um, and I feel like that's kind of how a lot of, you know, our generation is now and how a lot of our culture is, is there's so much more like hyper vigilance on not offending people and kind of doing the right thing and being, you know, socially mm -hmm. compliant that that's just kind of how everything is. Like you can think about, you know, all of the stuff that you hear from, you know, back in the day, like the things that kids would do and get away with and stuff like that, or the things that people would say and that would be fine. And I just feel like we're more um, sensitive to that kind of stuff nowadays, which is kind of good in a way and also bad in a way in that like it's good that we're, you know, trying to become better and kind of policing ourselves more and, trying to not hurt people's feelings and trying to be, you know, better to each other. But then in a way it gets rid of kind of a lot of fun things and it gets rid of like the ability to kind of express yourself freely and 
um, some people can get, you know, hypersensitive to things that maybe they don't necessarily need to be, or, you know, you can always find a way to make something politically incorrect or to chastise someone for saying something. So I don't know. It's interesting. I definitely feel like this kind of behavior sits differently nowadays than it used to. And I think it is going to continue to become more, you know, taboo and stuff like that. And I just think in general, more of our generation and more young people are generally more responsible and more kind of, you know, others thinking than maybe past generations. Hmm. Um, because I know a lot of like, uh, what's her name? Greta Thunberg, who's like, a, she's like 16 or 17 or something like that. And she's like a climate oh, change yeah. activist. Yeah. And yeah. she like kind of leads that field in in that area. So I do feel like there's a lot of people, you know, our age and younger who are more, maybe less childish, more serious, more like others thinking more kind than like maybe even we were when we were younger. Because there's kids nowadays who are like actually like doing things in the world and like making a difference. And like, you know, when I was 14, I was just playing video games. So I do feel like that's kind of a byproduct of our society and that that's going to continue. Uh, but that's really deep for a conversation on TPing stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure that I agree that mm. this converse, or this uh, generation is more conscientious or others thinking or whatever you want to call it than past generations. I do think that they have more tools and more opportunity to mm -hmm. to to do the things that they want to. Like, I think I do think her name is Greta something if someone if she were born 30 years ago she would not have had the tools the the social totally. media platform the 24-hour news cycle to have a platform to share her ideas and her opinions so that is one aspect of it but um, I don't think that there's more people that care about others now than there ever has been more young people, I guess I should say. Right. Um, but I do think that the uh, these concepts of um, pranking or light vandalism in jest, I, I think probably will become a little more fringe and a little more niche to certain scenes or subgroups and not necessarily the thing that a whole senior class would organ orchestrate every year or would be a tradition associated with something um, but will maybe be a little more specific or less popularized. That's yeah. just my, uh, my two cents, my opinion, my prediction. Cool. Yeah. It sounds good to me. I agree. Okay. My, uh, my secret, um, Hope was that we would vastly disagree and there would be a heated debate, but I really, mm. on this topic, didn't think that that would happen. Yeah, maybe the next one. <laughs> okay. Speaking of, I did some Googling, some boop, boop, oh. boop, 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 boop research and uh, found out some weird ways to survive in the wilderness because I think that generally you know the non-weird ways to survive. I think of I all do. the people in the world you would probably be in the top 
70% of people who could survive. <laughs> if I dropped That's every lower human, than I <laughs> <laughs> if I dropped every human in the world one by one in the middle of the wilderness, you would probably survive more than 30% of those people. And I am proud of you for that. Thank you. I'd rather it be like more than 70%, but well, okay. with these tools, with these tips okay. that I'm about to give Equip you, maybe. Me. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to start with some weird ways to start a fire. Have okay. you ever heard of starting a fire with an orange? I actually have. Okay. So <laughs> I read an, like a little short news blurb about this. News uh-huh. is probably too generous of a word. <laughs> um, but I, he was explaining it. He was like, step one, do this. Step two, do that. And I could not understand it. So I looked up a video and I found this video from 2011 of a guy. It was in like four by three format and yeah. terrible, ter- terrible audio quality. And the guy was kind of chuckling behind the camera, but it had <laughs> over 3 million views and he was, <laughs> it was so funny. Okay. I'll first tell you how to actually do it. So okay. first take an orange. Second, mm-hmm. cut a hole in the top. Third, Try to dig out all of that pulpy flesh stuff. Since you're trying to survive in the wilderness, it's probably a good idea to eat that stuff for some right. uh, nutrition. If you haven't already done that, just eating the orange normally. Um, anyway, so now you've got this hollowed out orange. So you want to let it dry for a while. Not too long though. And you put a, put a rock in there. You want to make sure that the top of the rock is still dry. And you get a long stick and you rub the stick on the rock to create some friction. And theoretically, the stick and the rock would spark and <laughs> and the spark would go onto the dry orange and the citrus oils in the orange are flammable, theoretically. And it would start to burn and you'd have this burning orange with a rock in it. Right. <laughs> the video that I watched was the guy doing this in real time. So he just cut a hole in an orange, scooped out like three tablespoons of the flesh, put a rock in there, rubbed the stick on it for like four seconds. And then they it was like a cut, like a cut in the video. And it was yeah. just like burning on endlessly. Fire. It was just on fire. <laughs> like I'm sure they just dumped propane on there and lit right. it. It was it was actually pretty funny. It was an entertaining video. That's awesome. But Theoretically, this could work. They said to test it. If you like, if you don't believe it, what you should do is take an orange peel and twist it so that the oils diffuse into the air, and then light that light those oils and watch them combust in the air. And then that that would be proof that the oils in oranges are combustible. Yeah. Do you think that that could happen? I think. Okay. So here's what I think. I think yes. It could happen, but I just think it's overcomplicated because really what you should be doing is just peeling the orange, letting the peel dry, and then starting a fire with the pieces of peel. I think the whole like trying to hollow it out through a hole and then stick a rock in there and then trying to light it on fire with a rock is just too complicated when you could just make a little pile of orange peels and you know rub a stick against another stick until it gets hot and then light the peels that way. So yes, I do think you can use an orange to start a fire, but I think the whole like art project of putting the rock inside and then trying to start it that way is silly. <laughs> yeah. So do you think an orange would be better kindling than just the regular stuff you would find on the ground? 
No, especially if the orange is like a whole orange because it's going to take so long to dry it out to the point where it's flammable where you'd probably just be better finding some like grass or something. So, I mean, technically it's possible, but if this was Mythbusters, I would say it's, you know, kind of busted. <laughs> okay, so the best the best one here, the, or the best option here is to just eat the orange. Yes, and then get some grass and light a fire. <laughs> okay, this one's busted. Next one is assuming you've got some batteries. Um, So if you've got a battery and you've got some steel wool and a wet cloth, or really a cloth, the suggestion is to get the cloth wet and then use the wet cloth to hold the steel wool against the battery and maybe rub it a little bit too to create some, I don't know. I don't know why to rub it. I didn't look in. I don't care that much. (laughs) But the steel wool against the battery, against the diodes, is that the word? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the battery creates sparks. And then you just use that to create little sparks on your kindling and and that would create a fire. Do you think this could work? I do, and I'll tell you why. It's because I've actually done this as really? part of a wilderness survival training. Um, and it's a really actually like nice cute. way to start a fire. It's small and compact and it doesn't weigh that much so it's a good backup to you know having like a lighter and then like a fire steel because you can just shove it in a baggie or you know you'd want to put tape on the battery so you don't start the fire in your bag (laughs) but it's just you can fit it in like a little palm-sized package and it works really well especially when you know it's wetter and it's hard to like get stuff going with a fire steel Mm -hmm. and the way it works basically is Steel wool is just super fine steel strands. And when you pass electric current through them, it's the same as like how, you know, a house fire might start. You're putting too much current through a small piece of metal that has too high of a resistance. And so it heats up and it gets hot. And with steel wool, it'll actually like, you don't even have to have something next to it. The steel wool itself will just light on fire and start burning. And so you just touch like a nine volt battery to it. And the steel wool will, you know, light on fire. And then you just put that in your pile of kindling and you kind of wrap it over. And Bob's your uncle. You've got fire. <laughs> Bob's your uncle. You've got fire. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So this one is a, is possible. Confirmed. Or, yeah. I guess you can confirm. encouraged by it. a lot of places. Yeah. Okay. I've got another battery trick. This one involves okay. a gum wrapper. Have you heard of this one? Um, I can guess, but tell us. Okay, so there's like the gum wrappers that have a little piece of foil. They're backed by a piece mm-hmm. of foil. So the trick is to take out the gum, rip up the gum wrapper so that it's in an hourglass shape so that it uh, has a little thin strip in the middle. And then you press the two edges or ends of the gum wrapper against the positive and negative side. This would be for like a... Uh, double A AA or triple A battery. And then you complete the circuit of the battery with the pieces of that gum wrapper. And in the middle of where you've created the short, thin part of the gum wrapper, it will theoretically light on fire because there's also a little tiny piece of paper on the other side of the gum wrapper. And the gum wrapper should catch on fire. And then you can use that fire to light your kindling. They also suggest using the gum from the gum wrapper or, you know, the gum that's 
Yes. In the package. In the wrapper, yes. Yeah. To um, put on the outside while you're holding it and pressing it together on the battery because it's going to heat up. It's so going to get hot. Yourself. So you don't burn your fingers. <laughs> yeah. um, I think this one could work. I almost yeah. kind of want to try it. I mean, do you have gum? The issue is most gum gonna, nowadays doesn't come with here. those foil wrappers. Or even if it is like that silver, it's actually not a metallic thing. So that's kind of the, the issue. Oh, he's got gum. I can I see it. I have a it. pack of extra right here. Is it foil? I mean, it sounds like foil. It. I, I've got it. I've got it unwrapped right here. Isaiah, you can. You have look a battery. I mean, it looks like foil. <laughs> Should we do it right now? I'm not going to do it metallic. here in my apartment. Okay. Okay. Well, um, the only way to really tell would be to either you know battery it or to use a multimeter to test and see if it is passing electricity. Or I could microwave it. <laughs> yeah, you could do that. <laughs> it really. I mean, it looks like foil. If any brand of uh, gum were to work, I think it would be extra. So okay. I am publicly endorsing that you will never die in the wilderness if you carry extra gum. I do think that, yes, in theory, this would work. I think steel wool would still work better, but this basically would be the same principle. And so I do agree that it would work. Plus, then you've got something to snack on after your fire is going. You can just chomp well, on some gum. G- gum is not a snack. <laughs> That's not a debate either. <laughs> Okay, the next one, last weird way to start a fire um, is with ice and it's basically just using it as a magnifying glass. Um, I've also seen this done or people try to use to do this same concept like the magnifying glass concept with a bag Mm -hmm. of their own pee. (laughs) So you just try to create a concentrated beam of sunlight. Right, yeah. Um, But you need something that is clear and refractive in order to concentrate the beam on a specific location. Yes. And unless you somehow found some really clear ice and got a really clear bag or I mean or got a really clear bag to hold your pee. I don't <laughs> think that either of these would really work that well. Yeah, I would agree. Um and I'm pretty sure Mythbusters actually did test this at one point. Um and I think what they found is if you do have like a perfect sphere of ice that's perfectly clear, which means like no minerals, no disturbances at all, which you're not going to find naturally. So you're kind of screwed there already. But um, they got it to smolder, but because the ice would melt in the sun, they could never keep the ice long enough mm. and perfectly round long enough to actually get it to start. Um and I would assume the same for, you know, like a bag of pee. It's never going to be so optically clear that you can start a fire with it. However, you can start a fire, you know, with a lens of some sort. So if you wear glasses, you can use glasses to focus the sun. Or if you've got like a watch that has a removable lens, you can use that. Or if you've got, you know, any kind of glass bottle, you can use the glass bottle to focus it. So it is a viable way to start a fire. Just ice is a dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't try to start fire with ice. <laughs> okay, next one. I would be surprised if you've heard of this one. Pants okay. as life preserve as a life preserver. Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I have heard of this. Oh, come on. Okay, this was just for you, <laughs> listener. So you tie the cuffs together. Do you tie the cuffs of the pants together, and then you button them up and zip them, 
And then you just fill them with air. There's multiple ways to fill them with air. You could like kick and paddle and and basically tread water and then toss the pants over your head and catch air like you would with a wind sail and fill up the pants with air, with air. Or you can splash water into the pants, also getting some air in there. Or my favorite one, because I watched a video of, of like a marine <laughs> doing this, is to hold your breath, take the pants underwater, and then blow your breath into the open air or op- open part of the pants and fill up the pants that way. Then once the pants are filled, you just put the like two legs between your neck, around your neck, and it's basically a life preserver. I Like I said, I watched a video of this happening and being successful, but I just don't comprehend how pants would be able to hold air. Right. <laughs> like, Well, okay, so I actually have done this too as part of like a wilderness survival <laughs> training. Um, and it's, they're not necessarily airtight, but they'll hold enough air to make it so that you don't have to like constantly exert yourself to stay above water. Hmm. Um, and it's it's one of those things where if you push like if you push the pants underwater, they'll start to like leak air. But if you have them full of air and you just let it sit on the top and of the water and you just kind of hold on to it, then it'll help a little bit. Um, and you're still obviously gonna have to like you can't just go to sleep and let the pants hold you up. You still have to do some work, <laughs> but it's, it's helpful to, I mean, number one, it's helpful to not have pants on when you're trying to not drown. So taking your pants off is a good step anyway, I guess, because they're not going to weigh you down and make it hard to move. So that's just a bonus in and of itself. Bonus. And take two, your pants off. it holds. Yeah. Bonus. It's just a bonus. To take off your pants. And I mean, two, the little bit of extra buoyancy definitely helps. Um, and you can actually do it with like a t-shirt too. It's less successful. But I found the best thing is like a a jacket, especially if you've got like a rain jacket or a poncho, then you're set. I mean, you just tie it off and it's waterproof. So you just blow it up. And at that point you can like legit like lounge. It's like a pool floaty. <laughs> you said you found <laughs> this as in you've done that? Yeah, I've done that. Wow. Why didn't you invite it's- me to this? survival camp was this like a boy scout thing yeah you just uh, had to be part of the boy scouts i mean you could oh. have done it we could have been boy scout friends but no you never asked me to join well i don't think it would have been up your wheelhouse when you were in sixth grade you're right i was not that kind of person <laughs> i was more the kind of person to like take piano lessons totally anyway have you heard of the universal uh edibility test uh, not that I'm aware of. Boom, I found one. So for, <laughs> if you're out foraging around and you don't know if you should or you can be able to eat something, I think hemlock is one that looks really similar to parsnips and maybe wild carrots. Uh-huh. Um, but hemlock is super deadly. So It'll straight up murder you. Yeah, if you think that you found like a wild root vegetable, it might also kill you almost immediately. So there's this thing called the universal edibility test in as kind of a step-by-step process to test things that you find. So first you should smell it. If it smells gross, it's evolution telling you, hey, don't eat this. Right. Next, you should sm- rub it on your arm. If you get a crazy reaction, 
That's another way of the world telling you, don't put this farther into your body. Next, you should rub it on your lips. If you get a crazy breakout reaction, throw it away. After that, you should put it in your mouth and swish it around, but don't swallow it. Same thing, if you have a reaction, throw it away. Then you can swallow a tiny little bit. And if you don't like crap out everything that you've ever eaten in your whole life, <laughs> maybe it's okay to eat, but that's still a maybe. And then you should just eat it and maybe you'll be okay and maybe you'll die. But that's about as good as you can get without having actual forest, foresting knowledge. Foresting? Right. Um, Forestry? Foraging? Foraging, that's the word. Foraging yeah. knowledge. Also, a warning, this doesn't work on mushrooms at all. So if right. you don't know everything about mushrooms, you probably shouldn't yeah. eat. Also, just don't eat random mushrooms at all. Legitimately, you will die. <laughs> that's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> but if you're like l- seriously going to die and your only option is to eat random things that you find in the forest, first smell it, then progressively rub it on places nearer to your mouth, then eat a tiny bit, <laughs> and then eat it, and maybe you'll be okay. This so, should be the title of this episode is progressively rub it on areas nearer to your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. There's not like a oh. standard naming process for these episodes anyway, so <laughs> why not? Oh, God. <laughs> See, um, it's stuff like this that makes me just want to like, if I'm lost, I'm just going to go try to like snare a rabbit or something. Because I don't want to deal with like spending eight hours to see if I can eat like some leaves. And then after all of that, all I get is to eat some leaves. <laughs> well, but but the but the bonus to this is once you figure out something that's okay to eat, assuming there's more of it around, you can always eat it versus a rabbit. You have to find it every time. So True. if you figure out that these leaves are okay to eat and there's hundreds of these bushes around, you got a like more renewable food source. True. I guess it just depends because like even if there were like hundreds of edible leaves, I still would probably be more nutritionalized by a rabbit because I've eaten salads and salads are (laughs) nothing. (laughs) I've eaten salads. (laughs) (laughs) One time they put a lot of lettuce on my Subway sandwich. That was basically a salad. True. I know. See, that was not sustaining at all. Okay. So another way to survive, I'm trying to help people out here. I love this. This is great. (laughs) Is um, to harvest plant sweat. Some people call it water. I'm calling it plant sweat. (laughs) So if you've got a plastic bag, you can just tie it around a big bunch of leaves on a tree and then put a rock at the bottom to create sort of a reservoir and wait. And after a while, the tree will have sweated it out and there will be a collection of water at the bottom of the bag. And this kind of blew my mind, honestly. It makes sense that the leaves would just kind of start to wilt and mm-hmm. weep their moisture. But this was really smart to me. Although I did start to think, if you have just a big plastic bag, maybe you should cut it up strategically and then create kind right. of a rain basin. But if it hasn't rained for a couple of days, this is a more sustainable and guaranteed way to collect mm-hmm. water. So this this is like a actually good. This isn't a weird one. Well, it is weird. Yeah. But it's still like yo, bring a plastic bag if you're going to Yeah. go 
hiking alone, you know? Totally. Yeah, the hefty bag is like one of the most useful wilderness tools you have. Yeah. This is actually like a super legit one. This is recommended in like um, military survival manuals and for like search and rescue people. And basically the way it works, I mean, it's just like you said, the, the leaves will give off their moisture and it can collect and condensate on the, the bag and then kind of funnel into a, you know, collection container. And basically the way they want you to do it in the military or in survival training is it's more of like a desert kind of water mm. collection method. And you basically dig a hole and you put a crap ton of bushes or leaves or cactus bits or whatever. And those all go in the hole and then you put a cup in the middle and then you put a sheet of plastic over the top and weigh it down with the rock and the sun will kind of you know heat those and cause them to evaporate and then it just all condenses and drops into your cup and so like they'll say you know you you make eight to twelve of those and you can just go around and collect the water from them you know throughout the day and it actually will produce a lot of water and they say you know you can like it's kind of gross but you can pee into them and then your pee just the water part of your pee will evaporate and condense and so then that adds more water and so it's actually pretty legit. It's called a solar still. <laughs> Why aren't you doing this segment? <laughs> um, because it's more fun to hear me talk about tree sweat than it you I'm knowing really everything it. about the solar still. Okay, <laughs> my next tip is spit fishing, which I'm not even going to ask you if you know about because I'm sure you do. I don't. I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. So... The idea here is you've got your shirt on and you wade out into the shallows and you use the front of your shirt as a little net and then you spit into the area that you've created as the net in your shirt and little minnows think that that food, that spit is food and they'll be attracted to it. So then you jerk the you jerk your shirt up out of the water and catch the minnows and it's a nice little collection, it's a nice little treat um, Man, minnows are minnows. dumb. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, <laughs> but they just see some. It's kind of like a shiny little weird lure. Yeah, I, I imagine this would take some patience and some time, but theoretically, this could work. And all you need is if you have a piece of cloth. Yeah, and your own spit. And if you can't create spit, you've got bigger problems. You should probably go tie yeah, a make tree, a solar tie a bag around a tree. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's really interesting. I would be curious to see this. I always see people, you know, like just grabbing fish out of the water, like they'll just stand still until a fish comes close. But I'm kind of curious to see. Like that sounds pretty entertaining to just like have a bunch of minnows just like grabbed up in your shirt. Yeah, and then it's just like a little like fish stick meal. <laughs> yeah, I'm. You could just. Uh, if you have a fire, you just fry them up real quick. You could probably eat minnows raw if you're desperate. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Okay. To round out this, I've just got a couple of quick random tips. Okay. Okay. You can strike a match on a window if you're, if the little box starter thing is wet or damaged or whatever. Really? Uh, theoretically. Let's try it someday. Hmm. Um, okay. You can replace the missing battery in whatever with an with aluminum foil and that just completes the circuit if you don't have more batteries. 
but you obviously still have to have some sort of battery. Like yeah, you would need that'd be a single missing battery out of like four. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. So if you have if it needs three batteries and you only have two, you can complete the circuit and just stuff in some aluminum foil. Um, you can use saran wrap as a barrier to infections on wounds and just kind of wrap up your wound and um, saran wrap. Obviously, that's not ideal, but it's better than just letting it hang out in the open and get infected. <laughs> um, it's recommended that you carry around condoms because they can be used to carry water in a pinch and they can collect and store dry tinder. They can also be used as a fire starter. Apparently they're flammable. And in conjunction with uh, the right angled stick, they can be a slingshot. And hmm. so I guess they have other, they have got a variety of useful tools or useful um, uses aside uses. from <laughs> their traditional use. Right. Um, also, it's suggested that you sleep on a full stomach to stay warmer while you sleep. So if you eat like a protein bar or something right before you go to bed, you'll be warmer while you sleep. Make sure you get all your minnows. <laughs> yeah, go spit fishing right before you go to bed. <laughs> um, also, it was recommended in one of these prepper blogs that I was looking at that men and women alike should wear pantyhose while they're out and about um, to avoid ticks and bugs and to avoid blisters and friction spots in their boots and it helps them to stay warmer, and it can be used as a filter in a pinch. And I was like, those are all great points. Yeah. I'm about to order some pantyhose. But then if you think about it, it's probably this like 60-year-old dude who's just like on this forum, and he's like, guys, this is so smart. And then he's out like hiking, not in a survival situation, just wearing pantyhose can you, and shorts. And it's no, like, can you deny any of those claims that I just well, made? Well, I mean... They're all true, but also they make like long johns that do all the exact same things, but aren't pantyhose. So if you're a dude, maybe yeah, just use long johns from LL Bean that cost sixty five dollars versus a pair of pantyhose that do the same thing that you would get a pack of ten for three dollars. Yeah, but I would argue that the long johns do it much better. Like if I had the choice between only wearing pantyhose and being naked otherwise, or only wearing long jo- long johns and being naked, like I would way rather well, sure, have long they're, johns. They're like thicker and more insulating, but yeah, if you're if you're doing it just to avoid ticks and bugs, like like the kind that crawl in through your boots and can give you Lyme disease yeah. in the north yeah. east, and to avoid blisters and friction spots in your boots. I mean, I'm on team pantyhose and not just because I'm not afraid of wearing pantyhose. I just okay, think so they're a great idea. this is where idea. our heated discussion is. It's in the pantyhose department. <laughs> yeah, this is not what I was planning on. But I think we should all be wearing pantyhose all the time to be prepared to bug out in any situation and get out. And then we can filter our water, avoid the bugs, and avoid blisters because we'll be walking. Who knows what shoes you'll be wearing when the apocalypse comes? Because really, this is what we're all really preparing for. This is what all these survival tips are really for, is <laughs> right. for when the apocalypse starts in like the middle of your workday. And yeah. you need to be prepared to know how to spit fish in your pantyhose, and hopefully you're <laughs> carrying around a couple of condoms and a battery. <laughs> 
I think that's going to be the title of our episode. <laughs> Spit fish in your pantyhose. <laughs> oh, um, man. Okay. That's oh, all of my uh, survival tips. Hopefully, we can all survive now. Yeah. When you just... learned here. So when yeah. the world ends or when you just get lost hiking, remember us. Remember the things that we've taught you. And yeah. then just survive. So in summary, bring pants, an orange, bat a battery, your own pee, um, and a, a hefty bag, and some condoms. That's all you need for the That's wilderness. That's all you need. Screw boots, screw a tent, screw water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'll be fine. Oh, man. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay, let's switch gears. I found okay. a um, an article that was based on a actual legit study done in 2019 that was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which was in conjunction with the American Psychological Association. And I only say that to show that it's legit. So the study found that food restrictions can lead to an increased feeling of loneliness because of a limited ability to bond with others through eating and shared food experiences. So when I say food restrictions, um, I talk about restrictions due to health or religious reasons. So that might mean um, being vegan or vegetarian or gluten-free or eating halal or not eating meat during Lent or things like that. And this study is based on another study that was done that linked feelings of closeness with people who ate the same thing. So they had people eat the same candy and then measure the feeling of closeness with people who ate that same candy versus strangers who didn't eat that um, same candy. So they, this study is studying the opposite feeling and they found that that was the case. And the, the reason for the for these feelings of loneliness, the reasons that the restrictions on your diet can lead to loneliness is generally that people have a have to worry constantly about what food they're eating and if they're being judged for what they're eating. So it's difficult to always have to think about that and to worry about judgment related to your meals. I think the most common example of this would be school lunches. I've heard anecdotal stories of people being teased for what is a pretty traditional school lunch in their culture. And uh-huh. it didn't necessarily line up with the culture or the traditional meal of their classmates. Um, and that's a that can be a pretty, uh, that can lead to pretty cr- chronic feelings of loneliness because that happens very consistently. Another reason that, that that those restrictions lead to loneliness is that you feel left out of communal experiences. So that would be things like people sharing a plate of nachos or splitting a bottle of wine at a restaurant. Um, and those are a little more situational and not necessarily as chronic, but they still can be um, impactful to people who have who eat a, a restricted diet for whatever reason. But this study also found the inverse effect for people who are sharing, who have that shared restriction with others. 
So, for example, when you meet someone else who is also vegetarian or a family that grows closer together during Passover because they're all eating that more restricted diet together and having that shared experience. Um, So I I thought this was interesting. And like, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, neither you or I, I don't think have either have ever um, had a a restricted diet for really any reason. But I think, I think that they're becoming more and more um, common for, totally for health reasons and for uh, a growing acceptance of religious reasons and just choices. People are choosing to be vegetarian or gluten-free or keto or paleo or whatever. And while that might be their choice, that's that can still be difficult to deal with at some times. Um, so I'm. I just thought that this was interesting that there is a a link between the experience of dining and that shared experience, that shared food experience, and loneliness. Because I've always felt that the uh, the experiences of all passing around an appetizer or all sharing the same bottle of wine and being able to comment on it, say, I like this one or that one, or I didn't like this dish or that whatever, is something that brings people together and something that is enjoyable. And a lot of people who are passionate about food talk about how they got into food because of those kinds of shared experiences. And I know I know some people who have a restrictive diet for whatever reason, and I do kind of I do feel bad for them when they aren't able to participate in all of those experiences. So I just thought that this was an interesting study. What do you did you did this elicit anything to you? Yeah, I mean I totally agree with both the study and with what you said because I mean not only in my opinion but also scientifically food is like a fundamental kind of aspect of humanity and human society. Um, more so than a lot of stuff. Like there's a lot of things that are just kind of maybe cultural or opinion based, but really like food is kind of one of the basic building blocks of how humans work and how we congregate and how we mm-hmm. build society in that like, because it's such a an important thing for us and a necessary thing for us to survive, we kind of all have it in common, but also because you know, there's just, there's no, like one of the best ways to get to know people and to get closer with people is to like go out to dinner or have people over for dinner or to like eat together. And it's, it's like a shared necessary experience. And then you're also having like communal time with it. And it's typically like really intentional community time. Whereas if you're just hanging out with people, it's possible to be distracted or to be focused on other things. But for the most part, when you're eating, you're, just focused on, you know, eating food and being with the people around you. Um, and so I really do think that it is kind of a, a basic building block of human society. Um, and so then when that's taken away from you, when you can't, you know, f- have the full experience of sharing in this with everyone, when you can't fully engage in that, I can see why it'd be ostracizing, you know, especially mm-hmm. for people who have really bad um food restrictions or allergies or intolerances to the point where they can't 
eat out at restaurants and stuff like that. And I know several people who have that where it's basically like they have so many intolerances that they basically can't eat at a kitchen that serves normal food. And so they basically can't eat out, you know, and so they might go out to dinner, but they'll bring their own food. And that is already ostracizing, you know, you're already the odd man out with that and you can't enjoy the same things everyone else is enjoying. And so I feel like we as a society need to figure out how to engage people who are ostracized because of that because it is such an important thing yeah um and it's cool that people are doing studies on it and stuff and trying to figure it out because it can be like a a big deal and it can cause you know like actual psychological issues um and so i think we need to figure out a way to be better about that as a society but also i think it it shows how like important this experience is to those of us who can have it and that we should like not take it for granted and and you know like when you're having dinner with your friends or family not just like watch tv or not just be on your phone the whole time Mm -hmm. but you know like actually engage and enjoy that communal experience because not everyone can and it's such an important part of our mental health in our society so that's that's what i think about it i would agree and also there's nothing like enjoying a good McDonald's meal with your friends just brings you together. <laughs> Communal suffering. Yeah. Talk about a uh, dietary restriction. <laughs> oh, I agree man. that that I, I, I generally think that it might be getting a little better. Um, I probably don't have the widest perspective on this, but I think that if you do have a dietary restriction... It's probably easier to go to more restaurants now than it was 20 years mm-hmm. ago. Um, but I think it's probably still something that not a lot of people think about. Uh, if you were to invite someone over for dinner and you were making... Totally. If you were making, uh, I don't know, like shrimp for dinner, to not even yeah. consider if that person had a a shellfish allergy until you were like serving it to them and they mentioned something um, right. just as an example i probably wouldn't do that but you're right that dining and eating together is kind of a it it's more than just the sum of its parts it's it feels yeah. um it feels kind of primal and yeah um like essential like you're sharing something that's important and a little bit vulnerable and yeah really deeply rooted in who we are as humans and yeah. so to to be a little bit disconnected from the others that you're sharing that that moment with for whatever reason is not small is not a small deal so yeah, I agree that that is something that I think we've generally gotten a little bit better at being more aware of, but totally should continue to be a topic of discussion in the not only in the culinary circles but in just our larger cultural um, discussions and and yeah something that we're all aware of as yeah as people. Yeah, and I'd love to see more like scientific research into it too because 
there's sure we can always do more to like kind of mitigate and to make people feel more accepted and to try to like make that more homogenous. But I think there's also a lot to be said about what if we try to like medically cure some of these things, you know, like people who have celiac disease, what if we can make their intestines accepted or like people who have, you know, anaphylaxis from eating something, what if we can find a way to kind of make their body not have that response? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's probably something that, I mean, I'm just saying this without any research or understanding really, but it's something that compared to other things probably doesn't have as much funding and desire behind it because it is such a small percentage of the population, or at least it was until, you know, the past decade or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there is a lot of room for medical research in this area. And instead of just trying to mitigate it, maybe we can, you know, solve it and then not have to have that problem. Um, and that's never going to get rid of, you know, stuff like religious exemptions or, you know, choice, but for the medical, and I think that'd probably be the most disheartening is if you medically can't do it, yeah. even if you want to, like that would suck. So I think trying to solve those would be great. And so I'd love to see more research and um, study into those areas, but. Yeah, that would be really cool. I hadn't even thought about that. We'll see. Got to have money behind it, I guess. I suppose so. (laughs) Okay. You got anything else? No, I'm hungry now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening to I Heard It on a Podcast. We've got new episodes every Monday and Wednesday that you can find all over the internet, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard today and you want to, if you want someone else in your life to be able to survive out in the wilderness with just a, yes. an orange and a battery, send this to them so that they can survive too. They can be one of the 7% that can survive with Isaiah. As always, you can reach us at I heard it on a podcast at gmail.com. Speaking of food and communal experiences, Thanksgiving is tomorrow. It's like <laughs> the epitome of food and Thanksgiving. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>